You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. So in the spirit of, of authenticity and um, always wanting to be as, as real and authentic with you as possible, um, and a number of you know what's going on with my family, I, I wanna just tell the rest of you, um, it's a hard season right now for my family. Um, specifically because uh, my mother-in-law, who is like a second mom to me and who has loved me like a mom, um, she is in her final days and she's gonna go home and be with the Lord um, in a matter of days. And so my family and I have been pulling 24-hour shifts um, to be with her, to care for her. That's where my wife is right now. And uh, a number of you have been praying for us and encouraging us, and I just wanna tell you how much that, that means to us. This is, uh, it's sacred ground that you stand on when um, you are helping someone finish well. And our, our, my mom, our mother-in-law, my mother-in-law, um, she knows the Lord, loves the Lord, has been ready to go home for, for some time, but it's hard to lose someone. There's just nothing easy about it and you're never ready. So thank you for your prayers for us. It really does mean a lot to us. The family um, wanted me to express that to you. And in the time that uh, we've been spending um, with my mother-in-law in her apartment, um, as I was thinking about where we're gonna go this week, I, I was just reminded of um, some history for Jamie and me that, that I think relates directly to what we're gonna go after today as we start this, this amazing letter to the Galatians. Um, on one of the walls in my mom's apartment is um, wedding photos of all three of the kids and their spouses and, and our weddings. And um, Jamie and I celebrated our 28th wedding anniversary a couple weeks ago. And so 20, uh, thank you, thank you. Yes, Jamie is very long-suffering and patient. Yeah, you're right, for sure. Um, but Jamie, for those of you who maybe don't know our story, was my high school sweetheart. So we have known each other since high school. We started dating as sophomores. And we dated for six years before we got married. We dated a long time. And four of those years were long distance. Um, we went to separate colleges in our college years. And in our first year, our freshman year, she was in Arizona and I was in Southern Oregon. So we were literally states away. And we're gonna reach back into the archives now, but if you go back to that time in history and in technological development, the only way for a long distance dating couple like Jamie and me to stay in touch with one another was really you had two mediums unless you went and got on a plane, which I did once in that freshman year. But otherwise, you had a payphone or you had a snail mail letter. So our contact with one another consisted of, on a weekly basis, I would get $5 worth of quarters because that's all I could afford. I would go find the nearest payphone and until those quarters ran out, I would get to talk to my girlfriend. Otherwise, it was snail mail letters. Now, there are a number of you who may have never seen a handwritten letter. <laughs> so let me coach and advise you that if you go to a museum <laughs> next to a payphone, you will see a typewriter, you will see a book on how to write in cursive, and you will see a handwritten letter. Because in this day and age that we live in, we have so many methods and modes of communication, and many of them are instantaneous, right? Cell phones, 
texting, I know it's so last millennium, but emails, um, you know, FaceTime, video chat, I would have given my right arm to have had any of those things when Jamie and I were dating long distance. It was a tough go to stay connected for four years primarily through pay phones and snail mail letters. But the deal with letters in particular is that letters have a form. And even in this day and age, when you and I get a letter in the mail, we can tell almost instantaneously as we open it up what to expect, what's coming our way, because there is a form to letters, right? Like by way of example, um, the letters I would write to Jamie, personal letters, you know, they'd usually start with something warm and snuggly, like, you know, I miss you snuggly poo or whatever. And then... And then it's, how are you? How are things going? Oh, I miss you so much. This is what's going on with me. Personal letter, right? Kind of follows this, this form. Can you imagine if I would have gotten a letter from Jamie? And sometimes I did, actually. But if I would have gotten a letter from Jamie that began like this, instead of, you know, dear love bucket or whatever she used to call me, some nauseating, affectionate name, she just said, Jay, what are you thinking what are you doing? How can you be making the choices that you are making right now? Would that be a departure from the normal form of letters I receive from her? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Would that get my attention? Absolutely it would. Because the letter would not be following form in part. There would be a tone, there would be a message just in the form of that letter that would get my attention. The same is true for this letter to the Galatians. In the ancient world, there was a form that you followed when you wrote letters, and it followed this form. The person, the human author who wrote this letter was the Apostle Paul, as the Holy Spirit guided him, as God told him what to write. And he follows this same form in every single one of the letters we have in the New Testament, except this one. And the reason we're pointing this out is because we preach in part to equip you to read the Bible for yourself and to absorb it and glean from it and enjoy it for yourself. And so right out of the gate, as we look at this letter, even the form that it's in is going to help us see what's really going on here and what the letter is about. So because of this dynamic, we're going to give you a more comprehensive overview of the letter to the Galatians, the book of Galatians, next week. But for now, we're going to look at these opening verses and look at this form. So in these letters, especially the Apostle Paul, he'll identify himself, he'll name who he's writing to, he'll give them some kind of greeting, he prays or expresses some kind of thanksgiving for them, he goes into you know, what he's really writing about, he cuts to the chase, does the body, and then he ends the letter. Something is missing from this list and this form in the letter to the Galatians. What is it? Watch for it as I read these verses to you and then we'll see what it was together. Paul, okay, check mark. He's saying who he is. Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by man but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead 
and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. Okay, check mark two. That's who it's going to. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So in there, he's worked in a greeting. I can tell you that there's a lot more to this letter that we'll be looking at in the months to come, so there's a body to it, and it does have a formal ending. So what's conspicuously missing in the opening of this letter? It is the prayer and the thanksgiving. And many scholars believe, and I think they're right, that it was deliberate that this was omitted. Because this is the equivalent of Jamie writing me a letter back in the day and saying, what are you doing? What are you thinking? How could you be doing this? He is basically going to necessarily confront them about something incredibly significant that is going on in their lives. Because there are some false teachers that have infiltrated their way into this church who are now teaching a false gospel and Paul is now going to steer into what's going on here. He loves them, he's concerned for them. It's not that he doesn't pray for them and it's not that he isn't thankful for them, but he's going right to his point because this is so serious. And my friends, what's important for us to remember is that the book of Galatians was written to people like you and me. It was written to Jesus followers. And so therefore, this has got some important things for us to understand and we're gonna talk about and remember and reflect on and learn from the gospel over and over and over again. The gospel isn't just for people who don't know Jesus. The gospel is for people who do know Jesus and we need to be reminded of it and hear about it and learn from it and absorb it over and over again every single day. And so that's what we're gonna do in this series together. So the interesting thing here with these five verses is Paul is basically telling us what the rest of the letter is all gonna be about. So in these five verses, we're really getting a synopsis and a sneak preview of what's coming our way over these next several months. So let's dive into it. He is going to be very direct with them about what the gospel is, but before he does so, he's going to establish some credibility here. First, he says he's an apostle. That's a really important word. It literally means one who is sent or a sent one, and it's an elastic word in the New Testament. It has different meanings depending on the context. For instance, you have the capital A apostles. They were the ones, the original 12, who were personally recruited by Jesus, trained by Jesus, lived with him for three years. There's only 12 of those guys. But then you see apostles who were designated and recognized and sent out by churches in the early church with authority and with the ability and the calling and the commission to go take the gospel to places it had never been before or to go lead um, and provide leadership to churches that hadn't had it before and what have you. So you have this range of what apostle means and this is really, really important and we're gonna hear more about this in two weeks when Paul basically rehashes for us how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts in the New Testament in Acts chapter nine. But he basically says, hey, because Jesus met me on that road, because at that point he called me 
personally to go and take the good news, that's what the gospel means, the good news, the gospel, to non-Jews, Gentiles, I'm an apostle too. He's basically saying, I have the same legitimacy and credibility that the original 12 apostles did, even though I'm not technically one of them. And then he goes on to say, I've been sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father, and that's why he can say that, because Jesus personally appeared to him and told him to do what he's doing, and if that wasn't enough, he is now saying, I have the weight of the church community behind me as well. So this isn't just me talking. These are the other Jesus followers who I am with, the other Christians I'm with, the brothers and sisters who are with me. We're, we're coming to you and appealing to you as a community. And then he says these amazing words, grace and peace to you. Now, we need to camp out on this for just a little bit. When you hear the word peace, what do you think of? What comes to mind? How would you define that? Well, you could define it as, well, you know, just chilling out, relaxing, everything's cool. Yeah, okay. You could also say, well, it's, it's the absence of conflict. Okay. You could say it's, it's harmony. Yeah. You, you could say that too. But when Scripture talks about peace at its foundation, Peace is all those things, but so much more. It comes from this Hebrew word that many of you will recognize of shalom, which at its its essence means the way things ought to be, the way God always intended things to be. And if you wanna go a little deeper than that, what that's really about is a right relationship with God, right relationship with one another, right relationship with self, and right relationship with land. That's really at the heart of what the Bible means when it talks about peace. And you intuitively get a lot of that because you just celebrated it. At Christmas, on this very stage, on Christmas Eve rather, one of the shepherds recounted for us, for those of you who were here or who were watching the live stream at that point, what it could have been like when the angels appeared to them and announced the birth of Jesus Christ. And do you remember what the angels announced in Luke chapter two? What did they say Jesus had come to do? Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, what? To those on whom his favor rests, peace. So why would they announce that? And and why do we need that? Well, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Let's go to grace. What is grace? I had a friend who for many years lived in the Middle East. And this is true, not just in the Middle East, but in a number of cultures around the world. When you greet someone, you don't say, hey, how are you, what's going on? You say, peace to you. Very common greeting, peace to you. What he would deliberately do is when he would meet someone, he would say, grace and peace to you, just like the Apostle Paul does in this letter. Because no one does that. That's a very uncommon greeting. And he would always get a necessary response to that. When he would say to some, they would say peace to him and he'd say grace and peace to you. They'd say, what do you mean by that? What's grace? And it would be an opportunity, and very deliberately so on his part, to be able to talk about what grace is. So what is it? 
Well, there are a number of, of ways you could articulate it. This is what we've landed on as a preaching team and we're gonna use this consistently throughout this series as a frame of reference, but grace really is God's unmerited acceptance, freely given for the sake of relationship and for the enablement to serve him and others. That is what grace is. There is, there is unmerited acceptance that comes with grace, that grace is about, but there's also an enablement for service that also comes with grace. And scripture uses them um, very comprehensively. But here's the really cool thing. Christianity, the Bible, is the only worldview in the entire world that teaches this. We are the only ones who preach and proclaim and try to live out grace to one another because grace and peace are a gift from God to us then the next reasonable question is, why do we need grace and peace? Why would the angels, of all the things they could have said when they announced the birth of Jesus, why do they say, peace on earth and goodwill to men, as it says in other translations? Because there isn't peace between us and God. We all start out in the same place apart from a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You are not God's pal. You are not God's friend. I am not on God's team apart from Jesus Christ. I am his enemy, but he's not mine. In fact, he doesn't want me to be his enemy. He wants me to be his son. He wants you to be his daughter. He wants you to be his friend. And again, every other worldview teaches that their leader, their prophet, whoever the leader of their religion is, came to show the way or to teach about the way. Jesus is the one who said, I'm not just gonna teach you and show you, I am the way. And I am the only way. Because he is the only one who sacrifices himself on our behalf at the cross to remove our sin, our brokenness, from us and to give us righteousness so we can have right relationship with God. Salvation, being saved from our brokenness and sinfulness and being brought into right relationship with God is Jesus Christ plus our response and that's it. That is the gospel. And when you begin to dilute the gospel or add to the gospel, then you begin to lose the only pathway to right relationship with God and that's what's going on in this Galatians church or in these churches, in these communities. There are people who are coming in and saying, oh, it's not Jesus, just Jesus, it's this and this and this. No, and that's why Paul is so urgent and impassioned about what he's saying here because grace and peace are gifts because Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this evil age and to rescue us from our own sinfulness and brokenness. And so therefore, we will not compromise ever on the gifts of grace and peace from God to us. That is a non-negotiable. And we understand intuitively, I think, the nature of gifts. Don't we? I mean, isn't that what we just did at Christmas? Did you not give and receive gifts, or at least most of us? So what is a gift really all about? 
Well, the preaching team and I, as we've been preparing for this series, have really been doing some, some study on what gifts meant in the ancient world. And there are some very interesting dynamics with gift giving in the ancient world and when this letter was written that are important for us to understand when the Bible talks to us about gifts. So let's, let's go there. So in the ancient world, when you gave gifts, you were very deliberate in how you did it. You only gave it to worthy people. You would not give it to someone who would discard it, abuse it, misuse it, forget about it, not care. You gave gifts to people who were worthy of receiving them. And you gave to get something back. Now, some of us might go, wait a minute, that's not a gift. That's called a trade, right? But no, as we step back and think about this, this isn't as different from our gift giving as it sounds. Now, you don't have to own this, but just think about this. Did you expect something back when you gave gifts at Christmas? When you give gifts in general, do you ever expect to get something back? Honestly, sometimes I do. And I think the same is true for you. But wait a minute, what about that third point there? That gifts are unconditional, but with conditions? Well, we'll come back to that in just a minute, because this is all enmeshed and connected here. What about the idea of gifts being given for the sake of relationship and deeper community? Do we ever do that? I had a neighbor who was from another culture and she gave my family and I at one point a gift very unexpectedly and it was extremely generous and thoughtful. And in talking with her husband who was an American, in later weeks, he said, well, you know what that means, right? And I remember saying, yeah, it's a gift. I get that. No, no, there's more to it than that. Oh, yeah, because you see, in her culture, that's a bid for connection. That's an ask for relationship, for community. She's expecting a gift back. Really? Yeah, and he said, it's not for the sake of the gift. It's for the sake of relationship. Because in that culture, if you give a gift, One is expected back because what you're really appealing for and asking for isn't more stuff, it's more relationship. It's more community. And it's intended to be circular. This isn't gonna stop. You will now give gifts over the course of the life of your relationship at certain times to solidify the relationship, to validate the relationship, and to deepen the relationship. So welcome to the gift family. (laughs) And that's exactly what happened. Now, as different as that may sound from how we tend to give gifts in our culture, it's not that different. When you give a gift to someone, does it deepen relationship at times? Yeah, it actually does. This isn't as different as it sounds. I think all of these dynamics we can relate to to some degree. And this has profound implications for what it means for you and me personally that God has given us the gifts of grace and peace. Last week, Jim Hislop rightfully said, and I'm gonna look at this because I wanna make sure I quote it correctly, God cannot love you more and will not love you less. That is absolutely true. God's love for us is unconditional, but it comes with conditions. 
Let me explain. I got a gift at Christmas that was unexpected, but that I really wanted, to be quite honest with you. I had talked with my wife, Jamie, about it for some time. She surprised me with it. Um, She saved a long time for it. And uh, she hid it from me for several months, which is a little disturbing, but I wasn't able to find it. I wasn't looking for it, in fairness, but she's so good at that stuff, and I'm so clueless. But she hid this gift and then gifted me with this gift, and I was completely surprised, and it was something I really wanted. I'm just gonna warn you. You're gonna see this and go, you're strange. You really wanted this? But I gotta be honest, I did. And it's this. It's a steam cleaner. It's a carpet cleaner. I know, you know I'm weird, that's nothing new, but let's just continue to add to the story. So it relaxes me to clean. Yeah, I know, that's disturbing in and of itself. And I like to clean carpets. Yeah, I know, it's, it's, it's disconcerting, but go with me. And I've cleaned like four carpets already with that, right? I mean, it's just... I really enjoy it, and it's a great carpet cleaner. It's gonna last me a long time, and I know how some of you think. Some of you are thinking, let's invite Pastor Jay over to our house to relax. (laughs) Hey, Pastor Jay, what are you doing? Oh, and bring your steam cleaner with you. (laughs) I see you coming from a mile away. I know, I know what you're thinking. But let's run with that for a minute. What happens if this very costly gift that my wife has sacrificed literally for to give to me, I simply kept in the box, put in a closet, and never used. Are there conditions with that gift she gave me, even though it was given unconditionally? Yeah, and reasonably so. Are there any of us who would say, well, yeah, that's legit. Ask for a gift, have someone really sacrifice and put themselves out there to get you that gift and then never use it. That makes a whole lot of sense. No, none of us, or few of us, (laughs) would say that's reasonable. The same is true with God. God's love is unconditional, but it actually does come with some conditions. And what are those conditions? Jesus spelled it out very clearly for us in John chapter 14. In fact, he says it three times in case we miss it. Do you know what he says? If you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you will obey what I command. What are God's conditions for his unconditional love? That we will trust and obey him. Because if you and I won't, you don't really love him. You're just giving lip service to it. So now it gets personal real quickly. So as the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and as he speaks to me, how's he asking you to trust him right now? How's he asking you to obey him right now? And there will be those times when you and I won't feel like it. I don't want to do that. I don't feel like I can trust you. I am not going to do that. Don't want to do that. Don't feel like doing that. What do you do? What do I do? 
when we're wrestling like that? Could it be like Paul is doing with the Galatians? that we need to be reminded of the gospel again? And what is the gospel? What is the good news? Well, once again, God has gifted us with his grace and peace, and he has done that by sacrificing and substituting himself for our sins. Do we, do we realize what that truly means? Do we realize how incredible that is? Once again, this is one of the distinctives of Christianity and of the Bible. Christianity is the only religion, the only worldview that teaches and proclaims and stands on this, that the God of the universe sacrificed himself for each one of us by substituting himself on that cross. We celebrate it every Easter. And once again, recognizing and appreciating that there's probably a number of spiritual journeys being represented in this room and online with our online community. You intuitively get this on some level. You want this on some level. And I'll prove it to you. What is the storyline that runs through every Marvel movie, that runs through Star Wars from start to finish, that runs through not just the medium of cinema, but through stories and fairy tales and fables and poems and other expressions of art that is true for every single people group, every single culture all over the world. Do you know what it is? Every single one of them, every single one of us longs for a hero or a heroine. It is the storyline that runs through everything. And I'll give you a contemporary example. How many of you subscribe to Disney Plus? Okay, how many of you are aware of Disney Plus? Okay, this gives me a little bit of frame of reference for how much I need to explain here. So on, <laughs> on Disney Plus, here it comes folks, on Disney Plus there is a spinoff of Star Wars called The Mandalorian, okay? And some of you are going, how is he managing to work Star Wars into another sermon? watch and see. <laughs> so, very basically, for those of you who don't know the story, you don't need to. The Mandalorian is the guy on the right. And I know he looks like a robot, but that's armor he's wearing. There's a dude underneath there. But the one on the left is a robot. And as the story goes, the Mandalorian is this bounty hunter. He's hired to emotionlessly, mercilessly hunt people down and take them to whoever is paying for the bounty just like it's described. This robot starts out in the story as kind of a peer, and then he becomes an enemy, and he's trying to kill this little baby Yoda that the Mandalorian now is protecting. And for those of you who haven't seen the eighth and final episode of The Mandalorian for this series, if you're watching online, mute the volume. For those of you here, plug your ears, because I'm gonna tell you what happens. So basically... This robot who is the Mandalorian's enemy and Baby Yoda, as cute as he is, his enemy, they're in this firefight. They're all gonna die and the robot sacrifices himself for the sake of everyone else and rescues them and saves their lives. This story repeats itself through the arts and through mediums over and over and over again and here it is again. Why? Because intuitively we know that we need a hero 
or a heroine, we need to be rescued. That is exactly what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago on the cross. He rescues us from this evil age that we live in. As we looked at last week with Jim Hislop, you and I live in a culture, especially this broken culture, that wants to define you by your brokenness. It wants to marginalize you. It wants you to buy into the lie that you're broken, that there's no hope for you, and that this is the way life is always gonna be. And that is not from the Holy Spirit. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell and from the evil one himself that gets perpetuated by this world around us. And if you know Jesus Christ, if you've responded to his good news, if you've responded to the gospel by receiving him into your life, then that is not your narrative and that is not your story. He has rescued you from that. And if that wasn't enough, because of his grace, he enables you now to join him in rescuing and redeeming and restoring and taking this incredible news to this world around us. You're not just a passive observer. Walking with Jesus, following Jesus, believing in Jesus is not a spectator sport. You're on the team and you are empowered to live the very life that you're looking for, a life of hope and peace and joy and fulfillment and purpose because he's done that for me and you. And if that wasn't enough, he didn't have to. Paul tells us in the opening of this letter, he didn't do this because he had to, he did it because he chose to. He owes us nothing, do you realize that? If we all start out in the same place, basically, proverbially, shaking our fist at God, saying, I'm gonna live my own life. I don't need you telling me what to do. I'm gonna define for myself what's right and wrong. I'll do what I feel like doing when I feel like doing it. A God, a truly righteous, just God, doesn't owe us anything but the consequences and the punishment for the very choices that we're making at that point. And instead, this God, because he loves us so much, at incredible cost to himself, sacrifices himself on our behalf when he didn't have to because he loves us. He doesn't owe us anything, and he gives us everything. And when we see this lived out through other ways, in this world around us, it's compelling to us, it grabs our heart, and it's powerful. And so you know that I'm always on the lookout for stories, and especially for stories that illustrate and point back to the good news, the gospel of what God has done for each one of us. This one comes out of Des Moines, Iowa. It's a couple years old. You may or may not have heard this story, but I'd like to read it to you. And this is what it says. Wednesday was a bad day to wear cowboy boots. At least that's what Chris Ahel thought as his feet struggled to gain traction on the railroad tracks. The time was 1.30 p.m. He had returned to work at Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo Bank in Ames after a late lunch. He parked his motorcycle, glanced over at a nearby railroad tracks crossing, and then he saw it. A big Pontiac Bonneville had stalled on the railroad crossing. He heard a train whistle. He looked as the crossing gates were being lowered and Ilhay, a 38-year-old father of three, noticed the handicap tags on the vehicle and he sprinted toward the tracks. Inside the stalled car were Marion and Jean Papich, an elderly couple from Slater, Iowa. He was 84, she was 78 and the engine wouldn't start. 
people in cars behind the downed gates yelled at the Papachas, get out, get out. And then Ehel thought of his three children. I just kept thinking, what if they were in the car? I had to do something. So Ehel got behind the car and he pushed. It wouldn't budge. His cowboy boots slipped on the tracks and the train was coming as he felt the Union Pacific locomotive bear down on them. The horn blared. The train brakes squealed and the ground shook. Ilhay ran around to the front of the car. He slipped the toes of his boots into the track ruts to gain leverage and he heaved. He yelled at Marion Papich, put the car in neutral. The train was close. You could hear it and I could even smell it. The big car finally budged. He moved the car back about five feet and then got out of the way with seconds to spare. The train zipped by, missing him by inches. I was worried about losing the backs of my heels, he said. I didn't know what to say or do. I was just standing there. He tried to talk to the Papaches, but they were too shocked to say anything. The train finally shuddered to a halt, and the engineer came running back towards the scene. Ehel walked back to the bank and got a cup of coffee. The tellers in the drive through windows who saw his heroic act swarmed him. They thought he was going to die. And then he decided to call his dad. You ain't gonna believe what just happened to me, he said. And then my dad said, you should probably go back out there and talk to that couple. So Ehel went back out, but he never got a chance to talk to the Papaches. They were unavailable for comment. Yeah. But Ehel has the comfort of knowing that they're still alive today because of his action. You and I can live, truly live today because of Jesus Christ's action, because of what he has done on the cross for us. And communion symbolizes and emphasizes that for us. I hope that the gospel is real to you because it's true. God is real. His promises are real. His presence are real. The hope that is symbolized by what we hold in our hands is real. I have a mom, a mother-in-law who loves Jesus who's gonna go be with him soon. And more than ever, I am grateful that what we celebrate here He's real. And what he offers you and me is, is real and tangible. And so we have so much to be grateful for. And when I need perspective and when I need a reminder of what this amazing God has done to me with the gifts of grace and peace he's given to me, I go to Galatians 2.20, which we'll get to in a number of weeks. But this is what it says. I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. But he didn't die for nothing. He died for you and me. And so... Let us remember him together and what he's done for us. Let's do that.
God, how grateful we are that seeing us in our brokenness and in our sin, you don't leave us there, but in your great compassion and mercy, you give us something we don't deserve, the greatest gift of all, the gift of yourself, that you would sacrifice yourself on our behalf to rescue us, to love us. Thank you, Lord. Would we never compromise on that? Would we never give up on that? Would we hold that close? Because through the power of your spirit, you're with us. And we thank you that the hope we have is real because you're real. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. His grace is enough. And that will be tested at times. And really when we say his grace is enough, what we're really saying is true. You are enough. And he is. But there will be seasons and there will be times when it won't feel like it. And you'll wrestle with that. And that's why we're a community. You know, we have prayer teams off to the side. They would love to pray with you. I know them personally. They are safe people. I gladly entrust you to them. But if we can pray for you in any way, please, please let us do so. Because if you know Jesus, if you've responded to the good news, the gospel of who he is, you are changed. You have a new identity and you have a new power to live out that identity. And so I'd like to leave you with these words from Titus. And let this, let this wash over you as we prepare to go from here. Because you see, it, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That is who you really are if you know Jesus. And you have the ability and the power to live that out as you go out these doors. And that's exactly what I'm gonna pray for all of us. Jesus, thank you for each person who is here. Thank you for those who watched in our online community. God, we pray that we would believe you, that we would take you at your word and that we would remember our true identity of who we are in you. You love us. You've rescued us. You've redeemed us. And now you call us to go with you and redeem and repair this broken world. So wherever we find brokenness this week and we can do something about it, would we? Would we not be passive? Would we truly live out the grace that you've given to us so that we can give that grace to other people? And we thank you that you are faithful and true. So would we trust and obey you? And we ask all this in Jesus' name. And God's people said... Amen. Hope to see you next week. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.